How do three trained professionals stationed on a tiny island with only one inhabitable building, completely surrounded by the sea, disappear without a trace? They had food and water, their clothes were still in their quarters, there was no sign of violence or bloodshed. Nobody had reported any abnormalities until the lights went out. There's nowhere else they could have gone, so what happened to the vanished keepers of the Flannan Isles Lighthouse? Welcome once again, dearest listener, to Channel FM's broadcast. For those of you who may be new to this station, here at Channel FM we aim to bring you everything that raises the hairs on the back of your neck. True crime, real mysteries, ghost and folk tales, cryptids, and more. I've always had a macabre fascination with the strange and unexplained disappearances of people. It's probably rooted in the fact that we live in a modern age of interconnectivity, and it's hard to think that, with all our technological advances, that anyone can disappear without a trace. Security cameras watch our every movement, our phones can track our location even when not in use, and we are naturally social creatures who notice when one of our own has gone. It's not as rare as you might think, even with today's leaps and bounds in technological progress. With this in mind, we can only imagine just how different it used to be when these electronic securities didn't exist. How many unknown people have disappeared into the shadows of history and been forgotten? How many of us have wandered unprepared into the forests and mountains never to be seen again? How many of the poor and low in bustling, hungry cities are vanished away for nefarious purposes? How many souls are lost at sea to the treacherous nature of the tempestuous ocean? Today's terrifying tale is one such unsolved disappearance that's persisted for over a hundred years now. Fans of maritime mysteries will be interested to learn that, today, I'll be speaking to you all of the peculiar Flannan Isles Lighthouse and the three keepers who mysteriously vanished in 1900 while manning it. Explanations are many, with theories ranging from a freak accident to cabin fever, and perhaps an outside action from villainous influences. You may also know this mystery from the 2018 horror movie The Vanishing, on which the movie is based. As with all our yarns, I'll start with a little context, then the tale itself, and go over a few of the theories so that you can come to your own conclusion on what might have happened to these three unfortunate souls. Without further ado, let's shine a light on this mystery and see what riddles out of the darkness. The Flannan Isles, also known as the Seven Hunters, are a small island group in the Outer Hebrides that lay off the west coast of mainland Scotland. Collectively, the islands have a landmass of about 120 acres, so not a large expanse by any means. It shouldn't take you more than a few minutes to walk the entire area. The lighthouse stands on Eileen Moor, the largest of the small islands. They're small but beautiful islands, beaten by the sea and salt and very desolate. The only structures there are a stone shelter, a ruined chapel dedicated to St. Flannan, and the lighthouse that stands on the isle's highest peak. A variety of birds also call the isles their home, as do a small number of rabbits. Minky and pilot whales are also commonly sighted in the waters. Construction on the lighthouse was finished in 1899, and it was first lit on December 7th of that year. It was to be manned by three individuals, with a fourth rotating time spent back on the mainland. 
The three keepers who manned the lighthouse were James Ducat, Thomas Marshall, and Donald MacArthur, with Joseph Moore as the relief keeper. The keepers were well trained and had a manual of protocol and rules to ensure that everything ran smoothly. The lighthouse would be lit at night or during periods of poor visibility to ensure that ships did not sail into the rocks surrounding the isles. These people would be essentially left to their own devices as they kept the lighthouse lit and well maintained. Daily errands and chores would be given to keep everything in working order, and a logbook would be kept of the daily activities. When the term came to an end, a relief vessel would sail to the landing closest to the lighthouse and deliver both the necessary supplies for another term and the relief lighthouse keeper, swapping him for whomever had been there the longest. At least, that was the plan. The first sign that something was wrong came only eight days after the lighthouse was first lit. On the 15th of December, the transatlantic steamer Arctor sailed past the Isles on its way to Leith from Philadelphia. The crew noticed that the light was not operational, despite the terribly poor visibility. The Flannan Isles were infamous among those who sailed in their waters. Many ships had crashed upon their rocky coastlines, caught blind in the thick fogs and storms that often plagued the area, and many a drowned soul had been cast to the watery depths. It's for exactly these reasons that, once they arrived on the 18th of December, the crew of the Arctor notified the Northern Lighthouse Board of the sighting. The response vessel, named Hesperus, attempted to leave on the 20th of December, but due to storms and poor weather, they would not arrive at Eileen Moor until the 26th. Even before they'd set foot on the Isle, they noticed that something was definitely wrong. The crew noticed that the flagstaff bore no flag, and the empty provision boxes were not stacked as protocol on the deck for the resupply vessel. Even more ominously, nobody was waiting to greet them as they arrived. Ducat, Marshall, and MacArthur were eerily absent. Jim Harvey, the captain of the Hesperus, attempted to contact the keepers by blowing the ship's whistle. When that failed, he fired a flare into the air above the island, and… nothing. Not a single movement or sound. Eileen Moore seemed completely deserted. The Hesperus crew launched a boat, and Relief Keeper Moore was put ashore alone to figure out just what exactly was happening. His findings began a mystery that's lasted for over 120 years. Moore discovered that the gates to the compound and the main door were shut. There was no sound of activity, no clamour of industry or work, only the roar of the ocean and the howl of the sea winds as it buffeted against the lighthouse. He entered the empty lighthouse and found that the beds were unmade and the clocks were unwound and had ceased working. A more detailed inspection of the grounds revealed that the lamps had been cleaned and refilled, and a set of oilskins, which is a large waterproof garment you often see sailors and fishermen wear, had been found. This is especially peculiar as it suggests that at least one of the lost keepers wasn't wearing it when they disappeared. It's a vital piece of clothing in their line of work, staving off seawater and cold wind, so the fact that someone wasn't wearing it implies that they didn't have time to pull it on. Everything seemed intact on the east landing, but the west landing was an entirely different story. A supply box held in place by a crane had been shattered and its contents were strewn all over the rocks and shore. Heavy iron railings, placed to guide and prevent you from falling, had been bent and twisted, and in some places wrenched out of the concrete they were set in entirely. 
a large rock weighing over a ton had been displaced, and large patches of turf had been mysteriously torn out of the ground in a wide area. There was no sign of the three lighthouse keepers anywhere. Moore and three volunteers from the Hesperus crew were left on the island to attend to the light and the day-to-day -day errands of keeping a lighthouse. After the Hesperus returned to the mainland, Captain Harvey sent a telegram to the board with the following message. A dreadful accident has occurred at the Flannans. The three keepers, Ducat, Marshall, and the Occasional have disappeared from the island. Fired a rocket, but, as no response was made, managed to land more, who went up to the station but found no keepers there. The clocks were stopped, and other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows. They must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane. Night coming on, we could not wait to make something as to their fate. On the 29th of December, three days later, Robert Muirhead, a superintendent from the Northern Lighthouse Board, arrived on the island to conduct an official investigation. Muirhead had been the one to recruit the three missing lighthouse keepers, and knew them personally. One can imagine that he may have possibly felt responsible for their deaths. At the very least, he likely had a vested interest in finding out exactly what had happened. After examining the keeper's clothing that remained, Muirhead came to the conclusion that the oilskin belonged to MacArthur. He also noted that the damage to the West Landing was, as he stated, difficult to believe unless actually seen. His official conclusion states, From evidence which I was able to procure, I was satisfied that the men had been on duty up till dinner time on Saturday the 15th of December that they had gone down to secure a box in which the mooring ropes, landing ropes, etc. were kept, and which was secured in a crevice in the rock about 110 feet above sea level, and that an extra large sea had rushed up the face of the rock, had gone above them, and coming down with an immense force, had swept them completely away. No bodies of any sort were ever found, no blood or bones or otherwise. Because of this, it's natural to assume that they were, somehow, taken by the waves and swept out to sea. These were, as I mentioned, trained, hardy, and experienced lighthouse keepers who should have known better, however. So, dearest listener, what happened to these vanished keepers of the Flannan Isles Lighthouse? The most likely seems to be the same explanation that both Muirhead and Captain Harvey gave, that a terrible accident led to their deaths. The West Landing is situated in a geo, which is a narrow and deep cleft or gully in the face of a cliff. During a storm, or any period where the waves are particularly savage and brutal, the ocean waters violently rush down the geo and explode with great force once they reach the end. It's very possible that MacArthur could have seen the incoming waves that would threaten the lives of his fellow keepers who were working on the West Landing. Rushing out of the lighthouse without time to don his oilskin, he ran down the cliff to warn Ducat and Marshall of the potential danger. In his attempts to assist them, it's reasonable that all three could have been swept away by a particularly dangerous wave. Another accident could have involved the crane and the shattered cargo. Marshall had been fined five shillings in a previous position when his equipment was washed away in a storm. In an attempt to avoid a repeat fine, he and the other keepers may have been attempting to secure the cargo crate with the crane when they were unfortunately washed away. There's also the eerie tale of the lighthouse's logbook, though it was eventually revealed to be a work of fiction, not fact. 
The supposed logbook states that severe storms, the likes of which Marshall wrote he had never seen before, were battering the island. MacArthur, a veteran and a well-built man with a reputation for brawling and violence, was crying during the storm, and that all three men had been praying fervently in fear of their lives. Still, cabin fever is a well-documented and very real thing. People often feel restless and irritable when stuck in isolated and confined conditions, though it can escalate into delusions, paranoia, distrust, and violence if left unchecked. MacArthur was apparently a volatile person, and, suffering from cabin fever, he could have begun a fight that caused all three people to fall to their deaths. Or, more frighteningly, driven mad by the isolation, he snapped and murdered his compatriots, casting their bodies into the waters where they would never be found. From there, he may have tried and failed to swim to the mainland to avoid being caught, or drowned himself once he realised what terrible act he'd just committed. There are other, stranger explanations too, that they were abducted by spies, pirates, or smugglers. Some believe that there are more supernatural phenomena at work, and that the island is cursed or home to an evil entity. It's true that the vanishing of the Three Keepers did affect the reputation of the island, and Seafolk are still some of the most superstitious people around, but to me this just seems like an unfortunate but honest accident. The sea is unpredictable at the best of times. Rogue waves, extreme weather, and you never know for certain what lurks beneath the depths. But what's your belief, dear listener? Is this simply just an unfortunate accident, or are there more nefarious efforts at work here? As always, let me know. Before we move on to our cryptid of the week, I'll give our special shoutouts for this episode. To everyone looking to a clouded and uncertain future with fear or sadness, to anyone who may be faced with an immediate moral dilemma, and to everyone named William, you all have our special shoutout for this episode. With that, we shuffle ominously onto the Cryptid of the Week. It seems only reasonable that we should have an oceanic cryptid after dealing with a maritime mystery, so without further ado, let's speak of the terrible El Demonio Negro, or the Black Demon Shark. It's the worst fear of every parent while out on vacation. You're laying on the warm and sun-kissed sand of a Mexican beach on the Gulf of California, there's barely a cloud in the sky, and a blanket of cool blue coats the air above you. It's been a while since your last holiday. You and your family have worked hard, so you've all recently rewarded yourselves with a nice trip to the beach and some well-deserved R&R. Your son has even made a few friends, splashing in the water with children from other families doing exactly the same as you are. You smile as you watch them enjoy themselves, completely unaware that this moment will quickly become the worst experience of your entire life. As with many disasters, it takes only a single second for everything to go terribly wrong. You look away for the shortest of moments, opening the lid to your cooler to pull a sandwich from it to snack on. Your attention is diverted for the briefest of times, four or five seconds at most, but by the time you look back, the atmosphere has changed completely. The children that were playing with your son now look down at the blue water in silence, all laughter and merriment gone. It takes a few seconds before the realisation hits you. Your son is gone, and there's no sign of him. You look further into the ocean, worrying if he'd fallen in or a rogue wave had swept him away, but all you can see is the enormous black shadow of something large beneath the surface of the water, rapidly moving away. 
Eventually, one of the children begins to cry, and the others join in as they flee from the water, confused and frightened. You stand, pleading, demanding to know what has happened to your son, but all they can manage to say is that something in the water took him, never to be seen again. Another victim of the terrible, man-eating, black demon shark. What you've unwittingly just had an encounter with is the deadly El Demonio Negro, the black demon shark that is rumoured to prowl the waters off the Baja California Peninsula. The black demon is said to be a gigantic shark, somewhere between 20 to 60 feet in length and anywhere between 50 to 100,000 pounds in weight. Those that see it state it resembles a great white shark, but others believe it may be one of the thought-to-be-extinct megalodon sharks, or another prehistoric predator that we know very little about. Though if it does exist, I'm leaning more towards the former than the latter. There's not a lot of evidence that this creature actually exists, outside of grainy photographs and film, though large carcasses of half-eaten whales do sometimes wash up on the shores. The rumours that this creature exists have continued for a long time now, with stories being passed down generation to generation as a boogeyman of sorts. It's possible that it's simply used as an educational tool for parents taking their children to the beach. Don't go too deep into the water or the black demon will eat you. You know, that sort of thing. It's also possible that this creature could be a great white shark suffering from melanism. Melanism is the increased development of melanin, the dark-coloured pigment you find in skin and hair. It's rare, but it definitely happens. Melanism is common in jaguars, for example, and you often see the condition in other such creatures, such as chickens and rabbits. But what do you think, dear listener? Is this truly a monster from a long-forgotten age, from the depths of the ocean, untouched by human hands? Or is it a case of mistaken identity, or simple melanism? Or does it not exist at all? Merely the fear of the unknown and dangerous used to discipline unruly and excited children. I'd be interested in hearing from you, whatever it is. If you have something you want me to mention on the air, a particular crime, mystery, or topic, a favourite cryptid of yours, or anything else relating to the channel really, you can reach me at charnelfm at gmail.com, or on Twitter at the handle at charnelfm. As always, I appreciate you all for downloading and listening, but it's that time of the episode where I bid you all once more adieu with a frightening fact. If I were to ask you, dearest listener, if you thought cannibalism, as in eating human flesh, was wrong, I imagine you'd most likely say something along the lines of, yes, disgusting, why would you even ask me that question? Or would you instead say, that depends, what sort of flesh? Well, if you happen to be living in the 16th and 17th century Europe, you might very well answer instead with the latter. As it turns out, the well-to-do of many European societies – scientists, priests, royalty, etc. – routinely ingested medical remedies for just about any and all ailments that regularly contained the ground-up remains of human bones, blood, fats, and more. Mummies were stolen from Egyptian tombs, gravediggers robbed and sold human remains, and fresh blood became a prized medicinal product as it was believed to contain the vitality of the person it came from. It might be utterly repulsive and barbaric to us, but at some points in history, cannibalism was even seen as a scientifically proven benefit to one's health. Isn't history strange? Good morning, good evening, and good night, everyone. This is Channel FM, signing off.
The songs used in this episode are titled Terminal, SCP-X2X, and Echoes of Time V2. They are made by Kevin MacLeod and are licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. His website is ecomputech.com, and he makes excellent music. Give him a look and a listen. <laughs>